0: Good morning, church. The scripture reading for today is from the book of Matthew. And we're going to go 38 to 48. And just as a reminder, this is Jesus speaking and he's on that mountain and he's looking around and talking to the followers and the listeners and the learners just like us. And I'm reading from the New Testament in modern English. Jesus said, You have heard that it used to be said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist the man who wants to harm you. If a man hits your right cheek, turn the other one to him as well. If a man wants to sue you for your coat, let him have it and your overcoat as well. If anybody forces you to go a mile with him, do more. Go two miles. Give to the man who asks anything from you, and don't turn away from the man who wants to borrow. You have heard that it used to be said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your heavenly Father. For he makes his sunshine to rise upon all evil men as well as good, and he sends his rain upon honest and dishonest men alike. For if you love, if you only love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even tax collectors do that. And if you exchange greetings only with your own circle, are you adding or doing anything exceptional? Even the pagans do that much. No. You are to be perfect. Perfect like your Heavenly Father. The Word of the Lord.
1: Well, thank you, Carrie Jane, for that reading of Scripture. And good morning. My name is Mike Traven. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. It's a privilege to be with you and thanks to the music team, at, um, speaking as someone who has zero musical talent, although I was in the fifth grade choir, and it did make my mom cry at that one Christmas. Um, my mom cried about a lot of things. Um, I, I'm just struck by... <laughs> sorry. The talent of our worship team. And how wonderful it is to sing a song written by... A song that proclaims the mission statement of this church and what God is calling each of us to, as I hope we'll see in our scripture this morning. But um, thank you for that. Well, at, here at Trinity Fellowship Church, we like to pay attention, if you will, to the liturgical calendar. Um, you might know that there are certain Sundays in the liturgical calendar of the church that are either fasting days or feast days. The second Sunday of February is an important Sunday in the liturgy of America. It is Super Bowl Sunday. It's a feast day. And so we gather here on this important day in our country. And And though far younger than the World Series or the Masters Tournament or the Kentucky Derby, the Super Bowl uh, began in 1967. It's It's a veritable national holiday. My wife and I yesterday were just saying that, We know some people who don't have to work tomorrow, and we are scratching our heads: is it a is it a is it a federal holiday? I mean, I don't, I don't have that. It's Super Bowl Sunday. People are going to feast so much they won't be able to go to work tomorrow. (laughs) But I I have to confess I'm taking a bit of a risk here. I'm using a sports illustration to sort of lead into this scripture passage, and I did not get the sports gene. Um. I'm deficient as a male in American society. If you start talking about professional sports, I have nothing to add to that conversation. I, I did play sports as a kid, um, all through high school. I had really not much talent. And from the very beginning, I think I was just in it for the concession stand, and I still am. Um, I will be attending a Super Bowl party today, and I care nothing except for the deviled eggs and what the commercials might be. Um, But my lack of athleticism aside, um, there's something about sports rivalries that are attractive to us. And we are image bearers of the triune God. And we've, we've been created for community. We all have this need to affiliate with other people. Groups offer us, healthy groups anyway, a sense of security and significance and belonging. And so sports rivalries give us this safe place, I think, to, to live into these groups, to root for our team and to root against perhaps an opponent. We're corrupted by the fall. We're imperfect creatures. And as a consequence of our sin, our, our nature is to, is to treat our group members, the in-group, as privileged over everyone else. And a consequence of, of being part of an in-group that treats its members as privileged to everyone else is, is that the, the partisans on the rival team, see, they form this out group and our fleshly proclivity, our inclination is is to treat them with some level of suspicion or contempt but but as I said, sports rivalries a you know some minor um, violent episodes aside they they create a safe space to support the creation of these in groups and these out groups and so this afternoon the NFC champion Los Angeles Rams are going to face off against the AFC champion Cincinnati Bengals. My native state of California versus Ohio. And to paraphrase the prophet Nathaniel, has anything good come out of Cincinnati? <laughs> I mean, short of the Partlows and the Strows, people very dear to me, Earl and his family... We won't mention the Heilmans who went back to Ohio and the Wright brothers. Um, I want to joke, not much good has come out of Ohio, but that's wrong. So I'll just stop there. (laughs) But the the Super Bowl, it's it's the pinnacle of the game, right? It's entire careers and, and football franchises are staked on making it to the Super Bowl. And in their 85 years of history as a franchise, the L.A. Rams have only gone to the Super Bowl four times. And in those four times in the Super Bowl, they've only won once. And so as their own marketing strategy says, the Rams, God's chosen team for the sake of my illustration. Rams, they're in the Bible. Cats, I don't see any. Um, (laughs) By their own marketing material, they've gone all in. By recruiting talent, they staked the future of their franchise on winning, on beating their opponent. But imagine if going all in for the Super Bowl looked different. Imagine if after being beaten down the field and having their opponent score on them, God's chosen team, the Los Angeles Rams, hailing from the City of Angels, Imagine if after this happens, after being beaten down the field, after being scored upon, they simply let the Bengals score the extra point. Now here's perhaps where the illustration breaks down a bit, right? Because I mean, a football contest in a sporting event or a stadium, it's, it's, it's a, it's a legitimate context where two opposing teams could be expected to fiercely compete. And there are, as I'll point out later, I hope that you're still paying attention by then, there are legitimate times where which we have to take a position of opposition. But but we can agree that such behavior by one opponent, it would be wholly unexpected, right? That's not what we expect, that they would just turn aside and let them score on them, right? Our expectation is that each side in a contest between groups would fight their hardest to preserve their self-interest, to be right, to be winners, to retain this position of privilege held dear, to be the champions, to be the best. And so to turn aside and and let an opponent have their way, it just seems counter to our very nature. It seems wrong. It seems unjust. Well, we see this playing out at every level throughout all of God's creation as it pertains to humankind. We see it at the international level. Russia on the cusp of invading Ukraine, perhaps. at, At the very least, flexing their military muscle to assert their influence on their opponents. We see it played out in our country culturally on so many levels. We see divisions in the church. So many denominations, so many people leaving churches because of perceived conflict and divisions within our communities and families. And so I think, I think already we have to just begin to spend some time in our own hearts and minds and ask ourselves, who do we see as the in-groups and the out-groups? We, we all have them. Where do these rivalries emerge for you, professional sports aside? Who are the in-groups and the out-groups? And then reflect on that on the night before willingly subjecting himself to the cross, Christ's prayer for his disciples and all who would come to believe in him was a prayer for unity. A perfect oneness with God the Father and Son through the Spirit and unity with one another. And, And why? Why was unity, why is unity so important To Jesus for his people. The son of God who experiences perfect unity, perfect community, perfect oneness with God the Father and God the Spirit. He prays for oneness so that the whole world would believe. And so our deepest need, our our deepest refuge for security, significance, and belonging, friends... It's the righteousness of God. A righteousness bought for us with the blood of Jesus Christ in a, in a transformative righteousness that Christ says we should hunger and thirst for. We heard it in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A righteousness, he says, as we heard last week, that must surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. If we want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And as Phil pointed out. At first glance it seems like this incredibly high bar. The religious elite of their culture and their society. How could our righteousness even hope to surpass that? And then in our passage today where Jesus ends it by saying. Therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Through our eyes, we just want to give up right now. It's unattainable. It'll never happen. But God has something else to say. And, and this is the and how I think all this ties into our passage of Scripture this morning. You see, God's standard of righteousness for his image bearers, first of all, looks far more extravagant than you and I can possibly imagine. And yet, as Phil pointed out last week, Jesus sets the bar low for us. So we can only develop this imagination by learning to inhabit a posture through a conscious and continual surrender to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. When I come to these passages on the Scripture of the Mount, the ten verses that, that were read for us this morning... I'm very challenged. Turn, turn the other cheek? Love my enemies? That seems like an impossibly high bar. It's not something that I practice, to be honest. I, I've grown up my whole life in a culture that says, let's go hit hard. If you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. It's very challenging. From where I stand, loving enemies and not retaliating, going the extra mile is feels like in your face, all in discipleship. If the LA Rams have gone all in to win the Super Bowl, Jesus is telling us, go all in for the kingdom of heaven. And going all in for the kingdom of heaven looks like turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, loving your enemies. And it's far too easy for me and for you, I suspect, to gloss over these passages as too hard to attain. I'm just going to keep reading to something that makes me feel more comfortable about the life I'm already living. And that, friends should give us pause and cause us to want to look at them more deeply all the more. And so what does this mean for you and me and for us? And I'm, I'm not sure I have great answers, to be honest. But we need to look at this seriously. So would you pray with me? Father, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see your standard of righteousness and hearts inclined to follow both the Spirit and the letter of your law in the manner in which you have called us to it. Amen. Well, in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we're in, we're, we're coming to the end of chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is in 5, 6, and 7. We're only a third of the way into it, and, and Jesus is explaining what a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees looks like. He's giving an exposition of the law, as Phil introduced us to last week. He's giving an exposition of the law, God's law, God's perfect, unchanging law, the law that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the law that is not abolished or set aside because of the appearance of the Messiah. Jesus is giving an exposition of the law in contrast to the law that had been taught throughout Israel for the past 1,500 years or so. You see, Jewish teaching of the law was an oral tradition. They had their scriptures written down, their Old Testament scriptures. But people didn't have a Bible like you and I have them on our shelves or access to them on the internet. They sat before teachers and they listened. And so it was this oral tradition. And in the, in the 1,500 years since God had given the law to Moses on Mount Sinai... The teachers of Israel had allowed their own thinking, their own experience, their own flawed thinking, their own self-interest to creep in to their teaching to the point where the letter of the law began to overtake the spirit of the law. Now, don't hear me say that the Pharisees were doing this intentionally or consciously, but I wouldn't also say that some weren't doing that. But what I am saying is that over time, in their desire to be law-following men and women of Israel, the law had become something that was so clearly defined that all they felt like they had to do to achieve their righteousness was simply follow it in lockstep fashion. And as Phil pointed out last week, that That they began to say, well, hey, look, as long as I'm not actually physically committing the act of murder, I'm not murdering. But Jesus pointed out that really these things are matters of the heart. They're matters of the spirit. Our spirit has to surrender itself to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is making the point that it is the spirit and intent of the law... ...that matter the most, as well as the letter of the law... ...and that we have to keep these two in right relationship. And so in this passage, he's giving six illustrations of a single truth. And this single truth is that the Spirit and the letter of the law are important. And so this morning, our focus is on the final two... ...which pastor and evangelist John Stott says are perhaps the highest point... In Jesus' sermon. A point for which this sermon is both admired and resented. Namely the, the attitude of total love. Which Christ calls us to show towards one who is evil. Or one who we would consider our enemy. He says nowhere is the challenge of this sermon greater than here. Nowhere is the distinctiveness of Christian contrast culture more obvious. Nowhere. Is our need for the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling? And this is the single point of my sermon this morning. Fully devoted disciples of Christ show exceptional and extravagant love. How we love people. How we love our neighbors as ourselves How we love our enemies reveals the love that we have for God. Jesus says that all of the law and the prophets hang on loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving our neighbor as ourselves. Love, friends. Love is what reveals us as fully devoted followers Christ. I want to start, if you will, at verse 48 of our passage. It's the end of the passage, but, but it's, it's key. Jesus says, therefore, you therefore must be perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he's given these six illustrations and and, and he concludes with this summative exhortation, be perfect. Perfect in the sense of the Greek word that's, that's used here in the scripture is, is one of completeness. The wholeness that's the result of, of full maturity. It's related to the Hebrew word shalom, which we translate as peace, but also really means wholeness, completeness. It's the image of a, A wall or a stone without a defect or a crack. Well, what does our heavenly Father's perfection look like? Well, the scriptures tell us it looks like love. God's perfect righteousness. The righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is love. The Apostle John tells us much about love. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Why? Because God is love. He tells us in his first epistle. In his gospel, he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love is so extravagant. That he came to earth, put on flesh, and went to the cross. So that all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And what does John tell us about Jesus' love for those who follow him? He says, Jesus loved his disciples until the end. To the end of his life, Jesus loved. And he tells us this is how the disciples of Jesus will be known. The love we have for one another. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says the greatest commandment is love. As I've already mentioned, all of the law and prophets hang on how we love God and how we love others. And back to my main point this morning, that that fully devoted disciples of Christ love as Christ loves and this love is a cruciform love. It's a self-disinterested, self-giving, self-emptying love. And that's what makes this so hard for you and me friends cuz I don't really I personally can't stand here and say that I know exactly what that looks like and feels like and how we live it out. And I suspect that you're the same and and All the more reason why this is of such great importance to us. Let's go back and and look at verses 38 through 42. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is, is quoting a command here, repeated in three different places we see throughout the five books of Moses. We find it in Exodus in Leviticus, in and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And the original intent of this command was to control excessive anger and violence and to constrain a cycle of revenge that was common in an honor and shame culture. You insult me, you hurt me, I hurt you back. My honor is tied up in this. And what happened over time is that this cycle just continues to repeat itself. It's a, a Hatfield and McCoy situation situation. Where people are just constantly at war with each other. We see it all throughout the book of Genesis. That evil just continues to proliferate throughout the land. And God keeps coming in to try and solve this problem. It's part of the judicial code of Israel, this law. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. To constrain this cycle. To end chaos. To put it in the realm of the courts. To take it out of the hands of the individual. To have a place where people can go and find justice. And have their hurts addressed. Their wrongs, perhaps. The damages done um, compensated. But the Pharisees and their teaching had distorted the intent of God's law. They They made it a personal matter. In fact, they elevated it to a point of duty. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a life for a life. They made it a personal matter instead of a matter for the judges of Israel. We heard this morning in our call to worship from Leviticus 19, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone amongst your people. That's what the law says. So Jesus here is is offering this seemingly radical reorientation. He says not to pursue retribution as individuals or to defend and so glorify ourselves, but to to vulnerably offer more of ourselves. And that's where this gets incredibly hard. To go the extra mile, as it were, as, as those who bear... The image of Christ. And he's given like four mini illustrations here, right? He's given a, a physical example. He's given a legal example. He's, he's, he's given an example of the government wanting something from us. And he's given an example of someone begging us for money. But I want to point out that it's important to see that these are not life or death illustrations. I don't have enough time to, to give us all the Specifics of how we approach a passage like this, but I want to offer to you that God is not asking us to sit down and take it, per se. He's calling us to use wisdom and, and wisdom takes discernment and, and no situation is easily addressed by a multi-point checklist from the law that says, okay, I'm good here. I didn't, I didn't violate the law there. Our natural tendency is to protect ourselves at all costs, as I said if my tendency and i, I full disclosure i haven 't been in a fight since the eighth grade okay I mean um, and you know people beat on me in the marine Corps it was part of training i didn 't take it personally but um, but if you hit me and it hurts, my flesh wants to hit you back. It makes me really angry when somebody hurts me if you hurt my if you even... Ass- <laughs> I'm going to take more of your time. There was a time when my brother, my kid, my family and I, we were visiting my brother and his family. And my oldest son was downstairs in the basement and I guess was antagonizing his nie- his cousin, my niece. And my brother came upstairs very agitated and he looked at me and he said, hey, if you don't go down there and handle that, I will. As Assuming, like, I'm going to go put my hands on your son. And I instantly became a very different person. I can't use the language I use with my brother, but it was essentially, if you touch my son, you will die. Okay? That's our flesh. That is our flesh. That's my flesh. I think that's your flesh, if you're being honest with yourself. I've lost my page. Forgive me. <clears throat> Take, you want to sue me, I'll see you in court. My brother-in-law's a lawyer, I'm going to assume he's pretty good, I don't know, but you want me to pay taxes, I might try to work my way around some of that. Um, Ask me for a handout, my thought is, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I worked hard for my money. But Jesus applies the principle of of Christian non-retaliation to each of these. And he he indicates the lengths to which we're expected to go. He's not contradicting this principle of retribution. Or he's not denying our right to defend ourselves. He's, As I said, he's, he's not offering us to sit down and take it gospel. There might be a time that you are confronted. That you might choose to lay down your life. For the honor of the kingdom and for the glory of God. But Jesus isn't saying that that's every example. But he's giving us a new way to confront injustice with kingdom power that's cruciform and creative in the way that we love other people. He's, he's calling us first to have a right attitude toward ourselves. That our first attitude isn't, hey, I'm going to defend myself first and ask questions later. He's calling us to a place to see other people as fellow image bearers of God and to say, how can I confront injustice with this person or this group of people in a way that causes them to see my own humanity, my own equality with them? You see, when we create people in out groups, we tend to demonize them. We think of all the reasons why they're not as good or meritorious as you and I, perhaps. Jesus is saying, take a moment. Turn the other cheek. Think about it. Is this insult? Is this hurt that you're experiencing? Is it worth the level of retaliation? There's, a, I think, a law of proportionality here. And that's what he's saying. Get rid of the spirit of retaliation or defense or revenge. We've got to start there, friends. If we want to be able to love our enemies. One quick example, and then I want to move on. In the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King adopted a strategy of, of nonviolence and um Resistance, if you will, and in um, 1965, in in um, protesting voting rights that had, were being denied to African Americans, there was a march plan from Selma, Alabama, to the capital in Montgomery. And these marchers only got as far as a bridge in Selma, where they started, and the governor of the state had called out the state patrol. And at this Pettus Bridge, there was a confrontation. And the state patrol began to beat the marchers and tear gas them. And they caused great injury. And as these marchers began to flee back across the bridge, they were chased by sheriff's deputies on horseback. Wielding whips, rubber whips with barbed wire around them. Men. Beating men, women, and children. And it was all caught on film. And these people had prepared themselves. They went through a self-purification, if you will, as they prepared for the march. It was part of the strategy. Can you accept blows without retaliating? And if you can't, then don't march. Can you go to jail for this? And so they did. They suffered this. And it was caught on film and it was televised that night. And it pricked the conscience of the nation. So much so that four weeks later they marched again. But this time under the protection of the National Guard. Federalized National Guard troops to protect them from the state government. Whose whose God-given purpose is to protect people. And as a consequence, the Voting Rights Act Act was was passed. And there's still a far, long ways to go 50, 60 years later. But it's a great example of this strategy of of nonviolence and and non-retaliation. That when we suffer, we can reveal to our oppressor the injustice that they are perpetrating. We force them to see us for who we are. Fellow image bearers of God. The world tells us we have to fight for our honor, but Jesus says perhaps we fight for our honor when we we die to our self interests And we we elevate the honor of God above our own. It takes concerted forethought and and soul-searching and a total surrender to the work of the Spirit. And so I want to try to land the plane here briefly. When we start in verse 43, Jesus again gives his last teaching. A teaching that I would offer is, now we're at the Super Bowl. This is the pinnacle of what it means to have a righteousness that sur- surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. He-, he brings his six illustrations to their climax. He, he points out that the Pharisees have, have combined a, a clear commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves, he's combined that with what is not a commandment of the law, this to, to hate one's enemies. It's not a commandment of the law. It's an, it's an inference drawn from a number of other Old Testament passages. And these other passages, they're, they're harsh statements regarding Israel's national enemies. But God never intended for them to be applied on an individual level. So in verse 44, Jesus gives them this kingdom alternative. He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Well, when all of life feels like a fight for survival, spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally, mentally, this commandment to love your enemies and to pray for them, it, it, it kind of feels like it's on the level of eat my flesh and drink my blood. What, what does it really mean for me? But I think they're getting at the same thing. It's it's die to your self-interest as Christ has died to his self-interest. Always act for the good of another, even Your enemy. It's a self-sacrificing, generous and active love. If you're a King James Bible reader, you see some other things in the same verse. It says, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. It's very active. Well, well, who, who is an enemy? That That's a question that we need to ponder. The word that's translated enemy here in the text means someone who's hostile. Someone who is both a hater and hated. But I think Jesus is calling us to get to a place where we don't hate somebody. He's not saying we have to be their friend. But he's saying... He's calling us to a place of going out of our way to act in their self-interest, even though they're not acting in ours. And why is that? Because God's love, this passage tells us, is universal. Do not hear me say that salvation is universal for all people. That is not what I'm saying. But God's love for all is certainly universal. God's desire is that all would be saved. But God knows that some won't, some will resist. The weeping and gnashing of teeth are those who refuse to submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's how we know Why we should love our enemies. Why? Because verse 45 says, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So that you may be. I think implied in here is is that if we do not grow into the capacity to love our enemies, to pray for them, to bless them that curse us, to do good to them that hate us, That it's difficult to be called a child of heaven. You see, loving our neighbors and our enemies is is the true outworking of the relationship that we have with God as our father. Right? Children imitate their father. God is calling us as his children to imitate our heavenly father. To reflect his heart and his character as, as one Seminary professor summarized the whole of the Johannine epistles. He says their message is is that our conduct is the clue to our paternity. How we live our lives, how we behave toward God and others and ourself is the clue to who our true father is. I read on Twitter the other day, from uh, Dr. Esau McCauley, who's Wheaton College's theologian-in-residence. He says, The joy of the Lord, not the hatred of our enemies, is our strength. So, what do you and I need to know about these outgroups, perhaps, that would help us love them? What do you and I need to discover about the groups that we feel are opposed to us or we're opposed to them that would help us understand their journey? How we might pray for them, how we might bless them in spite of their curses, how we might do good to them in spite of their desire to do harm to us. I, I think we have to start there to discover who ...is our enemy. And you see, God, he He does the same thing that he's calling us to. This passage tells us He he blesses the evil and the good at the same time. He blesses the righteous as well as the unrighteous. And why? Because God's love is universal. He showers it upon all of his creation. Because by his love, his hope, his desire, his will is to draw... All people to him. And as the church, as the very flesh and blood of Christ on earth, God's design is that we would join him in his mission to draw all people on the earth to him. And we do that through the way that we love them. You see, God's love is far more than we can expect or imagine or even comprehend. And so in verse 47, Christ is asking, he says. Does your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? He says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the pagans do the same? Do not even the scribes and the Pharisees? They, they don't love those who are poor. They don't love the outcasts. They don't love the meek. Because in their theology, they're not blessed by God. And Jesus is saying... God loves all people. Does your righteousness enable you to love all people? That's the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. If God's standard of righteousness manifests at love, should not our own righteousness manifest the same way? I want to point out that there's this adjective in verse 47 that, that is translated uh, in the ESV. What more are you doing than others? Carrie Jane, as she read it this morning, the word she used was exceptional or maybe extravagant. It's this sense of, of being more than is what expect than what is expected. Do we love others in a way that's more than what is expected, particularly for our enemies? It struck me that another translation for this very adjective is remarkable. We are moving into the remark, we are moving together into the remarkable love of Jesus Christ. A love that enables us to love our enemies. And so his rhetorical question is, what, what exceptionally loving thing are you doing? If you're just loving Your family, your in-group, the people who love you, you're not doing anything different than the pagans, the non-Christ followers. They do that. And it points us to Christ because this is what Christ modeled with his very life. Sorry, I was just thinking about my mom at that fifth grade choir uh, thing. (laughs) It chokes me up. I'm embarrassed by my emotions at times, but Christ loved even those who hated him. He prayed for them. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved his enemies with his whole life. And so, friends, we can't possibly hope to influence the culture around us until we influence the culture within us. We've got to surrender our hearts to him. And it takes a new man or new woman. You and I cannot do this in our strength to live this kind of life. You see, the law matters to God and the law must matter to you and me. But you and I as individuals, we can't uphold the letter of the law perfectly. Only Christ can do that. But but I want to also submit that the body of Christ, us together... We can fully represent all that the law embodies and requires. Where I can't do it, someone else might be able to do it. When we do it together, we're stronger. And so tonight, beginning at 5.30 p.m., the God's chosen team, the Los Angeles Rams, they're going all in in the hopes of being all done. To be crowned the Super Bowl champions. And so friends, may you and I, with the spirits leading, may you and I go all in. As fully devoted followers of the crucified and the risen Christ, dead to our own self-interest and showing remarkable, exceptional, extravagant love for the good of all humankind friends and enemies alike. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, um, Father, I just pray that you would um, prick our consciences, help us to see our hearts, help us to see those we've placed in the outgroup, those that we think are our enemies, and and help us, Lord, to grow in our imagination, through the leading of your spirit, to see how can we begin to love them in such a way as to right injustice, as to to show them the ways of your kingdom father i i don 't know what to do i don 't know how to do it, other than to lay on the floor and and, and beg you to help me to guide myself and so, Lord, may we be those people, constantly mindful of what it is, the level of righteousness that you 're calling us to, not to be satisfied in the level uh, the standard of righteousness that we 've created for ourselves over uh A lifetime of walking with you or a year of walking with you or a week of walking with you, Lord. Help us to not be satisfied until we were, we are all in as disciples. Father, help us. Have mercy on us make us into your kingdom, people, that we might walk in your ways and do your will to the glory of your name. Amen. Let us stand together.